Hello and welcome to October's Archimedes podcast. This is the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood where, as I'm sure you'll know, practicing clinicians form a clinical question based on a patient encounter. They go out, search the evidence, bring it back, critically appraise it, and then summarise it in a handy little morsel of joy. These, th- these clinical questions are then presented to you to save you doing the same thing. But of course, if you have a question, you too can go away and become a published Archimedes author. If you ask a clinical question, search the evidence, appraise that evidence, summarise it, and then get through our strict editorial processes as detailed on the website, and maybe even come up with something that will change practice for your colleagues all around the country, or maybe even internationally. The two clinical questions we have this month are about diagnosis. The first, if you have a child who comes in with a febrile seizure, should you screen them for iron deficiency anemia? And the second relates to a child who presents after a head injury. Is it worth just ultrasounding their skull instead of exposing them to the nasty radiation of a skull x-ray in order to see if they've got a fracture or not? Setting all that up, of course, we have one of these little critical appraisal notes where we think about the practice of evidence-based medicine or something around it. And this time, I'd like us to think about what the purpose of testing is. You see, there are many reasons why we request tests in medicine. If we take one imaginary patient's journey and follow it through, then we can pick up a number of those. Take the patient who presents with a painless lump on their arm, who looks tired and pale and a bit washed out. You might send a series of blood tests that diagnose anemia. You might also request an ultrasound of the lump, and that might show the ugly mass of features consistent of a sarcoma. Your friendly local plastic surgeon might do a biopsy for you after an MRI, and the histopathologists then confirm that it's a rhabdomyosarcoma. All of these tests are aimed at making a diagnosis to clarify if the patient in front of you has or does not have the condition. The oncologist who then takes up the patient's care will move to undertake a series of further investigations. There will be bone or PET scanning, marrow biopsies and a CT chest perhaps. These scans are not to make the diagnosis, that's known, that's the rhabdomyosarcoma, but to locate the disease and explore its extent and ultimately come up with a risk stratification, which might inform prognosis, affect the choice of treatment, or both. Should the disease be metastatic, then the treatment will include anthracyclines. This group of chemotherapy agents, as you may be aware, will mean that the patient is subject to repeated echocardiography, looking for early signs of a drug-induced cardiomyopathy. Here, the test is used to monitor function to assess the development of a condition. In those patients who present very young with a distinct subtype of rhabdomyosarcoma, they may now also be offered gene testing for a cancer predisposition syndrome. In this situation, the patient is being tested to highlight a potentially relevant issue for their own future. The ways that we look to appraise a test vary according to its use. A test to diagnose may be appraised for its diagnostic accuracy. A test to stratify risk by its ability to predict outcomes and the separation of the risk groups. A monitoring test by its ability to detect a change that then alters management and prevents an adverse consequence developing and a screening test by both the accuracy of the test itself, but also the intervention that would then follow that could ameliorate anything that was discovered. 
And then there are those other tests that we do to make ourselves feel better, like the chest x-ray, when we know that regardless of what it shows, we will give the patient in front of us a short course of amoxicillin. That's probably a test that's best not undertaken. Now, one of our tests that we're talking about today is the use of ultrasound to diagnose skull fractures in children that present with a head injury. This is being asked by Catherine Burke from Cardiff and William Christian from the Bristol Royal Hospital for Children. And what they're asking is a very straightforward and very sensible question. Little kid comes in after a witness fall from a chair, bangs his head, doesn't lose consciousness, and there's an egg of bruised buggy swelling on the left parietal region. The parents express anxiety about sending the child for a CT scan and wonder if an ultrasound scan would be good enough, or an MRI perhaps, because they did not expose the child to ionising radiation. You go away, look through a variety of electronic databases and try to come up with the answer. Well, this group looked through Cochrane and didn't find anything there, searched through Medline, got 110 articles and cut that all down to seven papers of which one of them was excluded because it was a very small case series. Two further papers were excluded because they were looking at the intracranial injury rather than the presence of fracture and another paper was excluded because the control group wasn't consistently looked at leading four papers in the comparison. The four papers range in size quite tremendously, three of them looking at around about 50 patients and one of them looking at over 200 different subjects with uh, 350 suspected fractures from a single centre in the USA. The others with one from Italy and two other ones from the USA. All of these studies were prospective, they were observational and they were looking to see about whether you could use the ultrasound machine as compared to a CT scan to see if there was presence of an important uh, skull fracture. The papers reported variable sensitivity, that is the ability of the test to correctly identify children with a fracture between 100% in one study but there were an awful lot of fractures in that study, so it makes you slightly uncertain as to whether it's the same sort of population, um, and down to 82% um, in another one of the studies. The studies themselves had trained the physicians for a different amount of time, um, but interestingly, the paper with the longest duration of training was the one with the lowest sensitivity in skull fractures, and also, that paper with the lowest sensitivity reported that sometimes the CT scan had been done before the ultrasound. All these features making you think that actually that should have inflated the sensitivity rather than decreased it. The specificity, that is the ability of the test to correctly identify those who do not have a fracture was over 94% in all of these studies and 100% in one of them. Now, I think you'll probably remember, or at least I'll tell you again, is that a highly sensitive test, if it's negative, rules out the condition, and a highly specific test, if it's positive, 
then it rules in the condition. So a really, really sensitive ultrasound test would mean that if you didn't see it, you definitely didn't have a fracture. Now the sensitivity isn't high enough to do that, so you could do an ultrasound scan and not be sure that there wasn't a fracture. Unfortunately, the specificity isn't perfect either, so you could do an ultrasound scan, claim that you'd found a fracture, but also lead that to have false positives. All in all, the results are not convincing enough to say that ultrasound can be used effectively on a paediatric head injury to rule in or rule out a fracture. Our next paper is from Dr King in Scarborough and Dr King in Oxford who looked at whether when children present with febrile seizures they should be screened for iron deficiency anemia on the basis that it has been noted that children who have febrile seizures might be more likely to be iron deficient. You'll notice that two Dr Kings working at different parts of the country looking at the same question would be quite surprising if they weren't related, but they are. This familial pair of haematologists and paediatricians managed to find 16 separate papers that examine the relationship between iron deficiency anemia and febrile seizures. Most of these are good sized studies, with the smallest having 50 and 60 patients and the largest up to 500. It was notable that the studies used a wide range of definitions of what was iron deficiency anemia. For those of you that aren't haematologists, you may be unaware that the gold standard for iron deficiency anemia is an iron examination of a stained bone marrow slide. Now most people would consider that over the top, even for a scientific research study into iron deficiency anemia and febrile seizures, and so these all used a variety of proxy measures using more easily available blood markers. All of these measures have some difficulties about them and the fact that different studies used different ways of looking at it adds to a slight confusion around what really is going on. Overall, it did look like there was an increased risk of iron deficiency anemia, bearing in mind these caveats, in those children that presented with febrile seizures. But the authors argue that there's a next question to ask. And that is that the majority of these studies were done in developing countries with a higher prevalence of iron deficiency anemia. It's lower in the UK and there would be less of an indication to go looking. And added to that, that most children who have a low haemoglobin can be detected clinically because they look a bit pale. They quite reasonably suggest that a child with a febrile seizure should be examined and if it looks like they're anemic, then that be investigated. But if the child doesn't look anemic, then there's actually very little reason to go and stab them just to get a blood sample in case they are. If they did show anemia, then it might well be worth treating, but not to prevent febrile seizures in the future, but more for all the other reasons that you'd treat an iron deficiency anemia. And as a final helpful haematological hint, the things you need to order are a full blood count, film, serum ferritin, serum iron, transferrin situation, or total iron buying capacity if you're really going to look at the iron status of children. We wouldn't advise that you send them all in for a bone marrow test with Pearl's iron stain. So 
that's this month's Archimedes. Tests that aren't tests, screening tests that don't need to be done, and tests that don't really help you in the emergency department. Also some handy hints from a haematologist, and if you want to be a haematologist, you will need the brain that's about the size of a relatively small planet. But do take advice from people in the field, and make sure your career in paediatrics is as fun as it can be. You can always add to your fun, of course, by submitting an Archimedes via the Archives website or contacting us on Twitter, Facebook or via the blog site. We look forward to hearing from you.